I'm James Hahn II. And I'm Mark LaCour. And you're listening to This Week in Oil & Gas. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. I do believe this is episode number 12. Am I wrong? No, you're absolutely right. We've hit number 12 and we still have people listening to us. Imagine that. Yeah, I think we're going to keep this going because we're having way too much fun. Way too much fun. I am James on the second. I'm from a company called Tribe Rocket. We are brand architects for next generation oil field leaders. What about you, Mark? And we're from a little company called modalpoint.com. We are the sales experts in oil and gas. Yeah, the sales experts and uh, and the oil and gas experts, you you being the brains in the operation, let's kick it off here. Saudi Arabia continues to turn the screws on U.S. Shell. What's the story? I mean, is this a, is this just a hyperbolic headline or what's the what's the real story? Well, so uh, the author, James Stafford, we're just going to have to go on record and disagree with him a little bit. The U.S. cannot export its crude. So our crude is not a global commodity. Now, of course, if we import less, um, then that does affect global supply. But, we, you know, we've said this from the very beginning. The reason OPEC um, has and, – and people have to understand OPEC has done nothing. OPEC just didn't cut production. And the reason that happened has nothing to do with uh, the shell plays or with OPEC trying to take – um, you know, to try to put some of these shell plays out of business. It has to do with two other typical political things that just, you know, some people outside the industry just don't get. So it's a well-written article. I just think the author's conclusions are wrong. Okay. So what were his conclusions? His conclusions is that uh, Saudi Arabia, which is the largest member of OPEC, is trying to maintain market share. Well, that would be true if we were competing with them on a global commodities game, but we're not. We cannot export our crude. The reason OPEC has not cut production is, is two things, right? They wanted to stick a knife in Russia's back while Russia was down, and they wanted to punish some of the other um, OPEC nations that did not cut production, like Venezuela and Nigeria, last time they asked for production cuts. So, um, you know, the, the our shell market is being suppressed, but the oil's still there. <laughs> the moment the price gets back to where it needs to be, we'll go back in, in full swing production. Now, we have decreased production in the U.S., but that's just a supply and demand thing. Okay. All right. Good. So I, I thought so. <laughs> I thought so. But continuing the OPEC conversation, we've got a Seeking Alpha story because what's one of these shows without a Seeking Alpha story? OPEC, April data, and EIA's DPR. No idea what DPR stands for, so let's start there. <laughs> so what's happening is, is o- OPEC um, is, is rant, rant, ratcheted up production slightly, like from 10.3 million barrels to 10.34 million barrels. Um, and and so that that uptick in production um, um, is is balanced across the different OPEC nations. So you know, while Saudi Arabia went up in productions, uh, countries like Angola actually went down. Iraq, which everybody's waiting to come online, um, is actually had a pretty big um, difference between the amount of oil they say they're producing and what's actually hitting the market. And then you have Iran and Venezuela, and and you know we've talked about this before. Venezuela's at the point where it's trading crude oil for rice and beans to feed its people. This is one of the OPEC nations that's being punished by these low crude prices. So, so let's go back to that original number. They went from what to what? Uh, it, it, it depends on what period of time you're looking at. But if, you, if you're looking at um, the actual production for like April, so they went from 10.29 million barrels, I believe, to 10.31 million barrels. That's not a big uptick. I mean, come on then. Then if that's the case, then, then why – why is that headline even existing that we just read? Because it, it's not like they took it to 30 million, right? <laughs> or whatever. I mean, if they wanted to put the screws, wouldn't they? 
Well, this article isn't. This article is is a is a non biased um, fact article, so that people. No, are, I get that. I'm saying from the last article, if you know, I'm just saying, you know, given the given the flow of the conversation from Saudi Arabia, the first time we started on, if 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 that if that premise was correct, I mean, how how can how can an uptick that small be putting screws to anyone? Yeah, yeah. So you know, there's a bit of sensationalism in there, and you know, we've talked about this before. Um, you know, good real news doesn't sell as well as sensationalized bad news. And we got some sensationalized bad news to get into in Michigan, but let's head on over to uh, the New York Times raising paddles in Seattle to ward off an oil giant. Dun dun dun. What do we got? Okay, I want everybody to listen to me and follow my chain of thought. So this is a bunch of environmentalists in Portland, Oregon. Shell is bringing in a couple of its Arctic test rigs for for basically retrofitting and refurbishment. And they're doing what they call a paddle protest. They will have a bunch of kayakers that will try, once the rigs are in in the port, will try to disrupt the work on these rigs because they are protesting the drilling for oil in the Arctic. Now, here's what I want people to pay attention to. These These kayaks are made of polypropylene. Polypropylene comes from oil and gas. So this would be the equivalent of you and me going to a um, don't wear, you know, don't kill animals for fur event and we're both dressed in mink. These guys that are protesting are actually protesting in kayaks made from the oil and gas industry. I mean, people really, where, where is this world going to where, you know, common sense is out the door. Yeah, it, I, I haven't tweeted it. I just had this thing rolling around in my head lately that if you say you're opposed to oil and gas, you might as well say that you're, a fo- you're opposed to feeding the poor and clothing children. Yeah, absolutely, right? The paint on your bicycle, the transistors in your smartphone, your laptop or your, your um, tablet, all of that comes from the oil and gas, your light bulbs, the, the electrical insulation on your Tesla. You cannot get rid of oil and gas, and, to, and we have um, – come such a long way in actually helping people and civilization that when I see stuff like this, and, and especially as hypocritical as they are, there's a big picture of them in yellow plastic kayaks. And it's like, do you know where the plastic came from that make these kayaks? Obviously, they don't. Either that or a bunch of hypocrites. Right. And and that brings uh, – I, I wrote a list uh, listicle, list post for – it was a guest post after I had left Drilling Info last spring, actually, April 1st. Um, and it was called seven, 75 Ways Your Life Would Be Ruined Without the Oil and Gas Industry. And uh, certainly pretty tongue-in-cheek, but I'll throw that in the show notes as well um, because it, it, it goes right along with this. I, I put together a whole listly uh, list with all of these different um, articles of clothing and things that wouldn't exist without oil and gas. So, so, so yeah, more, more, more uh, ridiculousness to talk about in Kalamazoo. So um, uh, I have some things to say, but let, let's uh, let, let's get the rotation going. And, and, and what did you see in this article? So this is basically um, an announcement saying the state of Michigan has settled with uh, Enbridge over a spill in I think 2010. Um, it, if you read this article, it's um, it, the, it, the spill was actually 2013. It, it didn't happen that long ago. Okay, 2013. All right. So, um, so if, if you read this article, it's, you know, 75 million sounds like a lot of money, but this article has a tone in saying that it's really not a lot of money, that all that happened is that the state of Michigan got their river cleaned up. Well, $75 million is a lot of money and Enbridge did the right thing. This money isn't something that where they have to write a check right now. They've already spent the money. They've already jumped in, um, you know, with their people, with their resources, 
they contained the problem as quickly as possible, and they went out and mitigated the environmental damage. Unfortunately, in any in industry, like oil and gas, at some times you have accidents. Um, you know, one of the worst environmental um, perpetrators in the U.S. right now is agriculture. They are constantly polluting the environment, constantly polluting water. Once again, it's accidents on their part. But if you look at the numbers, it's 100 times more than oil and gas. Unfortunately, you never see that in the news. And I think that there's a backstory to this. If people do a little deep dive into Enbridge, Enbridge did all the right things, right? They had an accident. They fixed it. That's exactly my point. And this one, I, you know, I have a soapbox on this one. Why? Because, well, I'm from Michigan. And and Kalamazoo is where most of uh, most of my uh, high school buddies ended up. So Kalamazoo, if you're not aware of anything besides the name, is on the west uh, west side of of Michigan. And I get mad at, at those guys, those west side Michigan people, sometimes because they need to they need to choose Chicago or 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 leave the state. That's my yeah. personal opinion. <laughs> I'm like, come on, it, you you, you got to stop having this affiliation with them. But regardless, um. Kalamazoo River, you know, I got one buddy who, who who posts stuff like this and just, you know, like all caps and all that kind of different stuff. And I went and I read this article and I was like, this is a great news article. <laughs> this is amazing because um, I don't I don't even know where I'm at in the video. But I also didn't want a headache either. So here's this guy. He's talking. In terms of the oil that you saw, how did that change your path? Was there still oil here a year later? Um... I'd say the following year you could still see remnants. Well, like I said, I think they did a, through here anyway, other people will tell you different, but through here, I think they did a good job. Right there. He says, he says through here, I think they did a good job. And you can hear the birds tweeting in the background. And if you watch the entire video, it's only a minute and 33 seconds long. The green grass is there. He's sitting there fishing. He's fishing. <laughs> Right. He's pulling he's pulling fish right out of this water and um and this the, you know he's sitting there and this is uh his favorite fishing hole right here on the Kalamazoo River and then in the same article uh below it they've got a time lapse of of them paddling down and you don't see any of it and this really it, it, I think it hits home not only because I'm from there and I have I have you know family and friends who have have misconstrued opinions about this but also because I just had the conversation with Hewlett um, that that you interviewed on uh, at the API luncheon right right and and that was a real eye-opener for me talking to him and realizing that an oil spill is something that you it, it's you spill the milk you you wipe it up you spill the oil there's all kinds of technology that just cleans it up and quickly yeah it's not like the the ground has been nuked and you can't walk on it for 100 years they remediate that soil up and up into including removing it and replacing it with clean soil. When the oil and gas industry has a spill somewhere and when they're finished, it's it's better than it was before. Right. And and that is a really funny thing that you say right there because there is one quote in here that 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 really kind of kind of shows you why I dropped out of journalism school. Um because it because this is a quote from the fir- from the same person, last name Hall. Um the first quote it says, I think the state would fra- uh, would phrase this as giving Enbridge the opportunity to clean up and leave it better uh, and leave it a little better than they found it. How, how positive, you know, that's a positive statement. And so, so he said, and then right after that, it says, but this does not seem to be penalizing Enbridge. And so what do they do? They use a, they use a block quote in the side, dot, 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 you know, 46 font. This does not seem to be penalizing Enbridge. So, so um, here's my, my two cents on that. The federal government is the only part of the government that can actually penalize companies. So, you know, no state, including Michigan, should be able to penalize any company. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and not to mention the fact that there's all kinds of other stuff in here about millions of dollars that are going to parks and, and other things that, that I personally know they need money for because they're having all kinds of tax fights and they got broken. I don't even, don't, don't get me started. Okay. Okay. Let's get going. What's, what's up with Rich Kinder? So Rich Kinder's near in retirement. And I actually know Rich Kinder. We're not buddies by any means, but we run the same political circles. And this is a good article where he's talking about the lack of talent or the potential lack of talent in the oil and gas industry could hurt the business. And you and I have talked about that a good bit in the past. The oil and gas industry has a shortage of skilled talent now, and it's only continuing to grow. And if we can't get our hands around it as an industry, it's really going to hurt us down the road. Yeah, so um, so he was speaking at what IHS? It says IHS Sarah week. Yeah, and he's talking about how some of um, some of his um, public um, contributions is going toward this sort of stuff to try to help the talent shortage. Now, you know, James, you you know this about me. For half a day on Fridays, I teach science in my local high school through the Society of Petroleum Engineers as a way to give something back and also to help with these talent. But the industry as a whole is is on this problem. So you got every oil company in the world partner with colleges and universities. You got Exxon out there on social media doing some really great stuff to educate our, um, our young people on how cool the oil and gas industry is to work for. It's high tech. It helps the environment. There's good money into it. So even though we have this problem happening, I, I think we're, we're, we're working hard as, a, as an industry to make sure we solve it. So an interesting point that that's down toward the the bottom of the article is that he's talking about the all of the above approach to energy production, um, which I think is is I think it's good to hear out of out of someone uh, with with his status. Although I think everybody in the industry is that, and maybe that's the point that I'm trying to make is that is that uh, I don't know anybody in this industry who doesn't realize the need for all energy. Period. Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, I get a little aggravated because people classify oil and gas under fossil fuels. It's not fossil fuels. It's a fuel. And it's a much better fuel than burning wood or coal, which is what our civilization was built upon. So we're, we're, we're getting there and we will make the transition. But, you know, there's people out there that unrealistically think you can just quit using oil and gas and who also unrealistically think that oil and gas is like these horrible polluters. It's how you use it determines your emissions. Here in the US and Europe, why our emissions are lower than they've been since since 1980. So it's it's a good place to be. Yeah, oh man, I was just listening to a an interview of a friend of mine Tom Singer and he's he's a professional speaker and he's on a on a show called the the Solo Hour and they were talking he was talking about when he was growing up in LA and I I've actually never heard this this just this this sort of reflection from him. Uh, and it had nothing. Obviously, it was just sort of thrown in in the middle of a conversation. But he's like, he's like, yeah, I mean, growing up in L.A., you know, you couldn't see anything. Of course, they clean that all up now. Right. <laughs> you know, and it's amazing that people don't realize how that happened. Um, so anyway, uh, uh, $2.1 billion for Noble Deal. What's going on? Yeah, we've talked about this before, that the next uh, 24 months is going to be the mecca for mergers and acquisitions. Here's Noble Energy doing something that they do really well. They're in a good place financially. They're looking at acquiring some assets for pennies on the dollar. Rosetta Resources, unfortunately, was not in a super great place, so it just made sense. So Noble Energy acquired Rosetta Resources. Now, I have to give a disclosure. I actually own stock in Rosetta Resources, and I am actually quite happy that Noble Energy just picked them up. <laughs> so what? So as far as acquisition is concerned, I come from the tech world. So, hey, we're going to buy these guys for this workflow or for, you know, for their developers or whatever. What, what, what are they gaining in here? So what they're getting is, is Rosetta. Rosetta has some prime... Uh, U.S. shell um, land, and and that's what Noble's getting. 
Got it. Got it. Okay. So, so, so more shale plays happening. All right. We're going to get a little over, over my head. I don't know about your head, <laughs> but um, heating up how to visualize geothermal data in DI transform. I, this is just really cool stuff to me. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know much. Uh, I, I'm not a, certainly not a geoscientist, but just reading the article uh, helps me feel smarter. Yeah, this is a really good article for the technically inclined. So geothermal data is basically mapping the differences in temperatures, right, from the surface all the way down. And there's and that geothermal data helps you with a lot of things when you're drilling a well. It helps you figure out where to frack, where it's not safe to frack, where you have to worry about different types of casings. And this is an article about how um, Drilling Info, one of their tools, which is called Transform, you're actually able to import the geothermal data in as well. And so this this is, is you know, for a driller, this is giving you a, a – uh, almost an absolute picture of what is going on while you're drilling so that you can make sure you make the smart choices. So you have less losses, less worry about leaks, less worry about casing blowing out, that sort of stuff. So this is this is some real-time drilling technology? Um, this, um, you know, James, I this is over my head a little bit too. I'm not sure if this is real-time, which is, which is called measurement while drilling, uh, MWD. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, or if this is pulling from a data source somewhere, like the um, you know uh, the government's um, uh, data records on, on geothermal, uh, I don't know. But if the if if you look at the visualizations, you can see how this would be unbelievably useful for for a drilling engineer. Absolutely. Okay. So so uh, let's 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 get out of the waters. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's, get away from this. <laughs> let's get away from this one. All right. So we uh, we ducked out of those waters um, after, I don't know, 27 minutes of rebooting okay. Skype and getting updates. So if this one runs long, um, blame Microsoft. <laughs> yeah, we've had some technical issues today that y'all won't notice this to listen to the show, but it's taken us like three hours to record this 20 minutes. <laughs> right. It, it, so seriously, an hour and 15 minutes now. And all right. So let's move on. Coastal states launch new bid for offshore drilling dollars. Yeah, this is a long story. It's been going on forever. So basically, the largest oil and gas company in the U.S. is the federal government. They're the one that control all the leases offshore, and they're the ones that make billions of dollars a year just leasing those things out. And so the states get some money uh, if if the oil is if the oil well is drilled on in their waters, which it usually extends about three miles out. But for the last 30 years, there's been a bunch of fighting between the federal government and the state governments about what happens if it's four miles out, five miles out, six miles out. We want a piece of that. And of course, our current current administration says, no, 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 um, this money should be for the people, not for the states where, where the, they're drilling, but for the entire people. So the, uh, the laws are in place, basically take that money and dump it back into the federal government. And this is a story about how some states out there are just saying, look, that's not fair. Um, we, we need to figure out how to make this work better for everybody financially. So how long – you said it's been going on forever. Um, 20 years, 10 years? It's been going on over 20 years, this battle between the federal and the state governments. And, and what happens is it it never gets better for the state governments. It slowly gets worse. The federal government will introduce a law or something else. And there's, there's actually some reform out there. Uh, we'll see if our Senate can actually get some stuff passed. Um, because what right now um, there's some areas in the Gulf Coast where there's there's caps. So you know a state like Louisiana, Texas may only get five hundred million dollars, no matter how much tax revenues generate. And once they hit that cap, they can't get any more. And there's some pending legislation out there to raise those caps. Yeah, and 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 it can even just using some transitionary words. States already take home one hundred percent. What what do you mean already? <laughs> like, like, well, yeah. So the states. 
do take home a lot of royalties and taxes if it's in their waters on their land. But the, 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 what this article is talking about is um, in the U.S., the state's waters only extend three miles from shore or from what's called high tide line. And so just four miles out, all of a sudden the state of Texas or Louisiana uh, gets almost nothing. The federal government gets it. And, and mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I see both sides of this. But I really think the state should get the majority of the money because they're the ones that have to build the infrastructure. It's usually their people, you know, their um, transportation, um, you know, their um, stuff that gets affected by by the oil and gas in both a positive and a negative way if something bad would happen. So this is just one of those things where, you know, I believe in states' rights, right, fundamental conservative. And so, you know, this is just another um, effort, another place where I see where the federal government is stepping on the states and it really just needs to go away. All right, and I've got to I've got to uh, go back because um, I I sort of was this is this is Jennifer Dewey, Louie, um, and and she's awesome and and uh, and so I was like, what do you mean already? But I don't want to make it sound like I'm I'm arguing with you, Jennifer. So so let's transition to make everyone laugh. We have the Weekly Onion in here. Supreme Court rules. Supreme Court rules. <laughs> so we're gonna throw that one in there. Um, while the U.S. Constitution guarantees uh, equality of power among the executive, legislative, and judicial branches, it most definitely does not guarantee equality of coolness. And in this regard, the judicial branch kicks that which can be construed as total and complete ass. <laughs> um, so, so good times on that one. And we have a whole lot of leftovers. Let's get into um, let's get into events next week. I have a press. Uh, pass, um, courtesy of the good people at Penwell. So I'll be at the, I, I don't know if people say PNEC or PNEC, but the PNEC conference is, uh, it's the 19th International Conference on Petroleum Data Integration, Information, and Data Management. So that's May 19th through the 21st um, uh, next week in the Harriet uh, Houston Marriott West Chase Hotel, Houston, Texas. As we said, folks, this has taken a really long time to record. Um, so we've got that coming up. What Nomads is next week as well, right? Yep. Tuesday night, I'll be there. So if you're going, you know, hit me up on Twitter. I'd love to meet you. Yeah. So we've got Nomads going on on Tuesday night. And then also t- uh, Doug Permian up there in Fort Worth. Uh, so anybody want to go holler at the everybody over in Cowtown and uh, get some bacon cheese fries. <laughs> bacon cheese fries uh, and in 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 wouldn't you know the name of the place is totally slipping my mind right now because it's taken us an hour and a half to record this um so so that's a roundup on on the events um mark get us the heck out of here yeah okay everybody do great work pay it for it we will see you next time go find some grease guys